Hello, everyone. This is Marcus Squitz, executive editor at MMM, and welcome to this edition of the MMM podcast. My guest today is Sebastian Gut, president, Bayer Pharmaceuticals, America's region. Thank you so much for being here, Sebastian. Thank you, Mark. It's a privilege to be with you today. And you're here in studio, which is even better. Absolutely. I'm, I was looking forward to, to this interview. Me too. Um, so, um, you know, let's go into your background a little bit, uh, which is very interesting. Um, you were born and raised in, in Germany, um, and uh, you attended grad school in Berlin and had a brief stint as an exchange student at University of Michigan School of Business, where you took MBA courses. Uh, then you returned to Berlin and actually earned your doctorate in management science, right? That's correct, yes. Uh, so we should call you doctor. Uh, not uh, le- <laughs> leave the doctor. Ah, okay. Sebastian is great. <laughs> okay, we'll keep it informal in, in here. Uh, then you were named to your current role in, in December 2018, uh, but you actually have quite a bit of experience as a country head uh, and as a chief marketing officer. Tell us about your background, including your time in some of those other countries, including Japan. So as you said, I, I was privileged to join uh, the pharmaceutical industry back in the early 2000s uh, and had the opportunity to spend considerable time uh, in, in country organizations outside of Germany. So I lived for a short period uh, in Taiwan and in Thailand and for four years in Malaysia, uh, looking after our businesses in Malaysia, Singapore, Vietnam, subsequently uh, in Turkey, uh, and then uh, most recently in Japan before transitioning to Germany and now to the United States. So a number of different geographies uh, and uh, the opportunity to help shape uh, our company to what it is today. Absolutely. And I'm sure, um, you know, in all those roles uh, with Bayer affiliates um, in, in other lands like uh, Bayer AG in Germany, um, Bayer Turkey, Bayer Japan, um, sort of uh, were different cultural experiences, you know, versus where you are now uh, at uh, your current positions based in, in Whippany, New Jersey at Bayer Pharmaceuticals. Um, to talk about sort of the, you know, the, the cultural cha- differences between uh, the two um, and, uh, you know, looking back, you know, how do you assess your first year uh, in, in this role? So building on your question, I mean, if I look at what uh, all these experiences have taught me, then it's really uh, the, the importance of listening and learning. Um, so as I look at my first uh, 12 months now, close to 12 months in, in role in the United States, I've spent considerable time to listen into the organization, engage uh, colleagues from across the organization, but also outside um, um, patients, physicians, uh, policymakers in a dialogue and really understand uh, where we are, what the opportunities are that we have ahead of ourselves. Um, and, and in many ways that has allowed me to, I would say, actually create transparency. So leader transparency is a, is a big theme that I believe in, mm-hmm. and that is important to me. And that has been in focus uh, uh, above and beyond, obviously, the many sort of strategy steps that we took over those 12 months uh, in the past year. Can you give some examples of how you've sought to kind of implement that, that kind of strategy? Um, so when you look specifically at, at culture, I, I think it... I'll actually go back a little bit and, and share with you an experience very early in my childhood. Um, so I'm, I'm, uh, we're, we're, we're three brothers at home, um, and my youngest brother was born with a significant disability. Um, so it was, it was actually clear right from the onset um, that he would be in a wheelchair all his mm-hmm. life. Um, and that was the path that was set for him. And, um, and if I go back to those years, and I was a small child, uh, my parents uh, didn't accept that fate and mm-hmm. believed in uh, believed in the impossible. And long story short, if I look at it today, my brother is not in a wheelchair. Hmm. He's actually perfectly healthy and has uh, beaten all odds. Hmm. 
And in many ways, that's that's a very important experience for me. It's it's the experience that indeed the impossible is possible. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's the experience that resilience uh, and focus uh, is important as you overcome challenges and adversity. And it's the belief that optimism is a choice. Uh? Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. so in, in, in many ways, as I look at my work around culture, it's grounded in that experience. It's grounded in the belief that we as individuals and collectively as an organization have tremendous power in ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, and my job is to help unleash that. Right. Optimism is certainly an important element in anyone's well-being and, and obviously, you know, recovery from, from illness. And it's, it's great to hear, you know, that your brother is doing so well. Yes. Yeah. Um, so um, let, let's just switch gears for a second and talk about uh, Bear as a company. It's, it's in the midst of a, a healthcare revamp, so to speak, uh, including the company's, uh, which, or which has included uh, the company's divestitures of Dr. Scholl's uh, and Coppertone on the consumer health side. Um, and it just inked a deal to sell its animal health business to Alanco, I believe, for $7.6 billion um, in, a in a bid to reduce the debt burden from its $63 billion Monsanto takeover. What are your thoughts on the strategic direction of the company? I'm uh, incredibly optimistic with the direction we're taking. Um, I mean, if you look at it, uh, health and nutrition are the two big, uh, not only mega themes, uh, but also challenges that we societally face. Uh, and as a company with our focus on, on the agricultural business, on the prescription and on the non-prescription pharmaceuticals, we're very well placed uh, to address uh, these, uh, these big uh, sort of the, these big topics of society. Mm -hmm. Like as I step, step back, you know, in, in my mind, we're at a time of unprecedented, uh, unprecedented acceleration in the sciences uh, and, and in many ways, you know, break what's happening in the sciences today is just amazing and in many ways unthinkable um, just a couple of years ago. Now, um, that leaves us as companies at a crossroad. It's, mm -hmm. it's the crossroad between really playing the long game of science or staying in the here, now, and today. And as I look at our company at Bayer, we've taken a decision, and that's the decision to play the long games of science to really double down on science and mm -hmm. innovation. Um, and as you look at in initiatives such as Leaps by Bayer um, or many other of uh, the initiatives and the things we've done over the last years, it, it's just testimony to our commitment uh, to driving and pushing the boundaries of science. Now, what's important, and we talked about this a minute ago in the context of culture, is that at, at the end of the day, all that needs to be grounded in an organization that has the right people uh, and, and above and beyond investments in science has a culture that is conducive uh, to building that future sure. uh, and contribute to society. Right, sure. Uh, I'm sure the uh, the innovative uh, culture is, is alive and well at Bayer. Uh, let's talk about the, the pipeline uh, for, for a moment, the pharma pipeline specifically. Uh, many analysts have said that, that Bayer's pipeline perhaps is too thin uh, to make up for an expected decline in revenues after its two bestsellers, the blood thinners Arelto and iDrug Hylea, lose uh, patent protection starting in 2023. So that situation could begin to compromise revenue from about 2024. Um, and pharma has been the, the bear growth engine for years. H how do you make sure that the company has a robust late stage pipeline? Uh, and what, what launches do you foresee in, in the US market coming up? 
So as I look at the United States and the last 12 months alone, we've seen a number of uh, important and significant launches. Uh, it started with uh, Jivi, um, our hemophilia product. Uh, it uh, continued, uh, for example, with Retracvi, uh, the first uh, pun mm -hmm. tumor um, uh, precision oncology product, uh, most recently with the launch of Nubeca, to just name a few uh, mm -hmm. important launches over the last 12 months, and these are indeed products that we believe have significant uh, potential uh, and, uh, and, and, uh, and significant growth prospects in the United States and beyond. Now, as I fast forward and look at the next uh, 24 months, uh, we're building up, uh, we're gearing up for uh, a few other uh, important launches, uh, and the most important is the launch of Venerinone, uh, our entry and, and uh, or our entry into the cardiorenal space into, into, in the United States mm -hmm. and an opportunity to help address uh, what is really a very significant uh, societal burden. Mm -hmm. um, if, if you look at it, about 40% of all uh, patients with uh, type 2 diabetes, and that's obviously a very large number, uh, develop chronic kidney disease um, over mm -hmm. the course of their disease. Uh, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, the economic burden of CKD in the United States alone is estimated to be 115 billion US dollars annually. So this is a massive, massive uh, um, sort of area of, 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 of need uh, and something that we will be venturing into with the launch of Venerinone. So exciting launches that we see coming out of our pipeline. Absolutely. But then lastly, and that's something we may want to talk a little bit about um, sort of as, as we progress, mm -hmm. a, uh, on top of that, a significant focus on business development and licensing, mm -hmm. a number of deals we've announced over the last 12 months, and I believe more to come. Great. Yes. Speaking of, of that, um, uh, Bear recently uh, acquired Blue Rock Therapeutics. Uh, uh, I believe it paid up to $600 million for full, full control of the cell therapy developer, uh, Blue Rock. Um, whose most advanced program is, is in the Parkinson's uh, area. Um, and um, that's going to be starting, I believe, a clinical trial uh, this year in the U.S. Uh, by the end of the year. Uh, do you see cell therapy as being a, a big big part of, of Bayer's you know, pharma pipeline? Absolutely, yes. I mean, as I said before, we believe that we are at a time of unparalleled opportunities in science. And cell and gene therapy, stem cells, uh, overall is, is an exciting space that we, mm -hmm. uh, we're committed to. And um, as I look at the acquisition of Blue Rock, that's uh, an important step in, 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 in actioning against that strategy. Mm -hmm. um, but it's not limited to that. Uh, we have uh, invested in a number of other companies over the last 12 months. Chloris Biosciences mm -hmm. is one example, uh, Pixis Oncology, Sensory Therapeutics. Uh, so these are all companies uh, that are really pushing the boundaries of science, often moving beyond treatment and instead driving ideas with a curative intent. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. And that's, uh, that's exciting. Uh, and it's, yeah. it's areas that we're committed to. But it goes beyond that. I mean, we've announced a significant expansion of our presence in Boston. Um, um, we have... Uh, uh, We've established joint labs with the Broad Institute. Mm -hmm. um, we are expanding our physical presence at Kendall Square. Um, and on top of that, we've uh, just announced a significant 150 million US dollar investment in Berkeley um, mm -hmm. to build out our cell therapy platform. So a lot going on. Uh, and yeah. a clear commitment to pushing the boundaries of science. Right, right. And I, I read, I think it was a Reuters story 
in, uh, earlier this month that uh, Bear brought on a new um, head of uh, acquisitions and licensing deals, um, which is you know, a further sign to the outside market that it's committed to the in, in licensing, and that's going to be a big, big part of rebuilding the pipeline. Absolutely. So, Mariana de Bacca joined, uh, uh, joined as a colleague uh, on the Pharmaceuticals Executive Committee uh, mm -hmm. just a couple of weeks ago. Mm -hmm. And if I look at uh, sort of at least my interactions with her, I'm, I'm sure she's a great addition to the team. Yeah. Super. Um, so uh, let's talk about, you know, on, on the commercial front, uh, what do you think are the most important commercial initiatives that you're planning for the next six to 12 months in the U.S.? So as I look at the U.S. specifically, I think uh, our focus on on strengthening building and strengthening our oncology business remains mm -hmm. uh, front and center. Yeah. Uh, we are very committed uh, to becoming a sizable player in oncology that contributes uh, innovation that makes a meaningful difference to the lives of, of, of patients with, uh, uh, with cancer. Um, and, and, and that's what's really driving us. Uh, but then, as I said before, it goes beyond. Uh, so over the next uh, 12, 24 months, months uh, preparations for the launch of Finerenone, mm -hmm. uh, our product in chronic kidney disease, uh, mm -hmm. will certainly accelerate in pace. Uh, and, and that will see us building and expanding our presence in the cardiovascular and cardiorenal space. Uh, we have a uh, world-leading business in women's healthcare that we will continue to expand in the United States. Um, we have a world-leading business in radiology, um, um, world market leader in contrast agents and, mm -hmm. and, uh, and uh, uh, precision fluid delivery systems that will continue to strengthen. And we have uh, very strong and established businesses in areas such as hemophilia or multiple sclerosis mm -hmm. um, that will continue to play an important part in our strategy. Right, hemophilia is a, is a big area uh, of your portfolio as well. Yes, undoubtedly. Right. Um, let's talk about uh, oncology uh, for for a moment, uh, since you, you mentioned that earlier, um, with 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 uh, um, Over the summer, we read that European regulators had recommended approving Vitrocvi to tackle tumors with a specific genetic mutation for N NTRK fusion positive tumors, putting the medicine on track to become the first in Europe approved with a so-called tumor agnostic treatment approach, um, the concept of a cancer drug's use based on genetic growth drivers and not on the tumor's specific location in the body is a really interesting area uh, of precision oncology. Can you talk about that approach as well as, you know, your, just your general take on precision oncology and how it will allow for better therapies and, and also what are the barriers? Absolutely. I mean, before I go into retractly specifically, I mean, uh, allow me to share with you that I have a very deep and personal passion when it comes to oncology. My hmm. My father passed away from lung cancer some two years ago, oh, wow. okay. and and as I go back to that experience, um, it was it was actually sad to see what cancer care looks like, at least in Germany today. I mean, mm -hmm. it's hmm. very much focused on the tumor site of origin. In his specific case, it was it, it was lung cancer, um, as I said. Uh, and and if you look at sequencing and whether that is done and and at what point in time it is done. Mm -hmm. It was very sad to see that it was, in his case, not done at all. And mm -hmm. I understand that uh, even in the United States, it, of, it is often not done or done very late. Yes. And that's, and that's just tremendously unfortunate uh, mm -hmm. because at the end of the day, uh, if we're able to identify the genetic drivers of a tumor, uh, we are today, and Vitrachvi is the first and prime example for that, able to, uh, to, to just deliver significantly better care Mm -hmm. and uh, both prolong life uh, substantially or 
improve quality of life uh, very meaningfully. Mm-hmm. So in my mind, we're at a time where we need to start to rethink how we how we treat cancer um, and what particularly the diagnostic workup looks like. Sure, sure. And I, something I read some crazy stat like like one percent of patients with a cancer diagnosis actually have uh, reimbursed coverage for genetic sequencing, you know, of their particular tumor. Um, Absolutely. And I think, um, I mean, if, if, you, if you look at us, uh, we have a massive, uh, massive, massive commitment uh, to changing that. We've invested into, we are investing in 2019 alone, some 70 million US dollars uh, to really change the way we collectively approach cancer care. Mm-hmm. Uh, Test Your Cancer is, is, is an important part of that. It's a campaign um, in, in which we encourage uh, both mm-hmm. patients, but also physicians, um, insurance companies, and others uh, to really put significantly greater emphasis on early testing and sequencing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, because uh, at the end, uh, if, if, you, if you happen um, to be faced with an NTRAC fusion, as an example, uh, there's just a significantly better treatment option available than if you were looking at the cancer through the lens of the right. tumors out of origin. Right. And, you know, we have uh, the, the direct-to-consumer genetic testing companies like 23andMe, which do offer some sensitivity to things like BRCA um, and, and those genetic anomalies. But the sensitivity and specificity is obviously way short of what a, an, an oncologist, say, in, in an academic medical center, you know, or a cancer center certainly would, would require. Absolutely. And I, I spend a lot of time out in the field, uh, both in the major academic centers, but also out in the community. And I think there's increasingly a recognition that we need to just step back and, as I said before, rethink the way we approach uh, cancer care. Now, um, launches such as V-TRAC-V ultimately push us in that direction because historically it was, it, it, was, it was more of an academic thought, but ultimately wasn't necessarily actionable. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and as we now look at the track V and over time other launches, uh, it starts to become actionable and indeed yeah. uh, uh, impacts uh, both lengths of life and quality of life of patients very significantly. And, and with that contributes to the well-being of society. Absolutely. It's, it's an exciting space to be in and to, to know that one's making such a difference is, uh, is really exciting. Um, so I'll have time for maybe one more question before we get to the lightning round. Uh, uh, we, we've had Priscilla Beal on, on the podcast before. As you know, she's global head of digital ecosystem engagement for Bear, uh, And she's spoken quite passionately, I might add, about the need to partner with and invest in startups. Uh, and we just saw that Bear actually led a $40 million financing round with OneDrop, which is a New York City-based digital health outfit that sells diabetes management tools, including through Apple. Um, and Bayer has licensed its technology for its biodigital efforts in areas beyond diabetes. So, you know, can you talk about, you know, some of these examples where Bayer is kind of reaching across the aisle to partner with health tech startups uh, in areas of tech like AI, for instance, that you think will be impactful for the company moving forward? Sure. I Three quick thoughts. Uh, the first thought is that we believe that the combination of biology and tech We'll see. Uh, um, we'll 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 see us uh, uh, looking at significant advancements and stuff that basically was unthinkable not too long ago. Mm-hmm. And now at this intersection, it, it's just exciting what happens. Uh, so to us, uh, our deep experience in biology, coupled uh, with the tech ex- expertise, will help us to meaningfully push the boundaries of science and make a big difference. Second thought is that partnerships to us are, are just uh, incredibly important. 
-hmm. It's partnerships with tech companies, it's partnerships with biotech companies, it's partnerships with academia, industry, across a wide range of, of, of uh, sort of uh, constituents. Uh, we just believe that partnerships in itself are something, it's a necessity, but it's also something that we're particularly good at. Uh, mm -hmm. Thirdly, if I look at uh, the opportunities that tech uh, presents, uh, massive, um, just one, one interesting stats uh, is the fact that at this present moment, about 10% of all patient deaths are attributable to a late or wrong diagnosis mm -hmm. in the United States. So using technology to augment um, the ability of physicians to identify disease earlier is one mm -hmm. area that we're very passionate about and that we're investing in. Specifically, CTAF, uh, chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension, is one of those examples where we deploy deep learning algorithms to ultimately empower physicians to diagnose those patients mm -hmm. a lot earlier than the case today. And that's one of many examples. So it's exciting. Mm -hmm. There's a lot happening. We're committed to it and we're committed to doing it, not just alone, but with partners. Great. Great to hear that you have a, a stake in that AI-assisted you know, diagnostic area. Uh, it's a really exciting one. Okay, should we start the lightning round? Sure. going to ask you a few questions. Um, I prefer you answer in binary fashion. So you have to pick in one of the choices. binary fashion. Yes. That's a challenge. Let's see. <laughs> Let's see how, see how it goes. Um, hopefully I've given you good choices. And you can elaborate on your choice. But uh, okay. Okay, question one. As we said, you went to grad school in Berlin, then had a brief stint as an exchange student at the University of Michigan School of Business, where you took MBA courses. Biggest difference between Ann Arbor, Michigan, and Berlin is football, of course. So European football or American football? So if you ask my kids, I have three boys, 7, 11, and 12, they will say soccer. If you ask me, it's clearly go blue. Okay, nice. All right. So you go, I was going to say, what team do you go for? So was, you, you, you've made your allegiance clear. <laughs> okay. Yes. Uh, second question. We've seen a number of big companies ditch their chief marketing officer, CMO role, including Johnson & Johnson, McDonald's, Uber, Taco Bell, and Lyft, with the chief communications officer, CCO, at those firms taking on more responsibility to fill the gaps. So I put it to you, Sebastian, CMO or CCO? I'm clearly in the CMO, chief marketing officer camp because I believe that you need a steward to build big, globally leading brands. Okay. Uh, staying on the CMO role for a moment, do you see pharma companies bringing on CMOs in the future? Yes or no? I do, uh, but I see those CMOs expanding in their scope of responsibilities. I think particularly the patient angle will be a, a, a much uh, more important uh, part of their job and of their responsibility. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. Okay. Final question. We've seen biopharma companies uh, ditch their non-core businesses like animal health in order to focus on pure play, drug discovery, manufacturing, and marketing. To a certain extent, that's extended to consumer health. Do you see foresee consumer health being a, a part of the modern biopharma company, uh, or is it better handled by, say, a consumer packaged goods CPG manufacturer? So the question is consumer health brands better with biopharma or CPG? clearly better with biopharma in my mind. I, mm. I spent yesterday, for example, a day up in Providence with uh, the leadership team at CVS. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, and uh, one of the many things we, we discussed was the opportunities that present itself in the combination of both OTC and uh, prescription pharmaceuticals. 
Right. It's a more potent combination when, when you have both. Right. Yes. Absolutely. Okay. And certainly there's a long history of that on the biopharma side. Uh, so it's, uh, thank you for your views on that. And um, we're going to uh, just uh, mention a couple of housekeeping items before we wrap up here. Um, MMM will be posting the results of its annual career and salary survey on Tuesday, October 1st. And that's always a popular feature for hiring directors or any biopharma or healthcare agency exec if you want to see what the average salaries are for your position and a wealth of other data presented in a pleasing and engaging format. As we always try to do here at MMM. And if you haven't already, please be sure to buy your tickets for the MMM Awards ceremony taking place October 10th at Cipriani Wall Street in NYC to see what good looks like in medical marketing in more than 30 categories. Um, okay, so uh, that does it for another episode of the MMM podcast. If you enjoyed this interview, please like us, subscribe to the podcast on SoundCloud or your podcasting platform of choice, and leave a comment to help others discover the show. I want to thank once again Sebastian Goot for being here and for being such a great guest. Really appreciate Appreciate it. Thank you, Mark. Sure. And uh, we'll see you next time, everyone, on the MMM podcast.